I know it's hard to believe, perhaps, that, that I, as your pastor, would have conflicts with people, that I would have problems, but I do at times. And there have been times, uh, one particular occasion in Spain, that I had a, it was a pretty intense conflict and disagreement with a fellow pastor friend. And it went on for a long time. We didn't start off that way, but it, it kind of just grew and grew and it just really got out of hand. And I didn't know what to do, so I called a pastor friend of mine. And, and for a period of nine months to a year, I, I would call him every evening uh, from Spain, and he was back in the United States, and we would talk. And not only did he give me wise counsel, but here's what he was doing. He was saying, you know, Manuel, what you need is to have the gospel pressed into your life, all right, in this specific area of your conflict. And you know, that's hard sometimes. Um, but it was so good. It was so good. Because what all of a sudden, what he helped me to understand is the gospel is not something that I believe or you believe just to get into heaven, right? It's not something that I need just to be saved and then I'm in. No, I need the gospel every day. I need the gospel when I have conflicts. I need the gospel in my marriage. I need the gospel with my finances. I need the gospel as I raise my children. I need the gospel at work. I need the gospel all the time. And so what he helped me do was saying, look, in this situation, which you need to remember, that aspect of the gospel, of the person and work of Jesus that you need to remember is this. He is a professing Christian, this brother (laughs) that you're in conflict with, and you need to see him as God sees him. How does God see him? God sees him in the righteousness of Christ. God sees him as one who is being conformed to the image of Christ. God sees him through the work of Jesus Christ as one who is godly and holy. So, what he was saying to me, he was urging me, he says, be involved in the shaping process of this man's life. You can't fix him, you can't change him, but be involved in the shaping process of this man's life as God works in him. And may God use you to bring about that sanctification and that righteousness and that holiness that God is working on. May God use you. And, I, and it gave me eyes to see this man that sometimes I go, oh, you so frustrate me. And it gave me eyes, gospel eyes, to see here's the man who's clothed with the righteousness of Christ and deeply loved by God. That is taking the gospel and applying it to the conflict. In my conflict, what James does in this passage, he takes the gospel and he applies it in this situation that is a conflict. Because recall, what is a conflict? We looked at this last week. Uh, Some Jewish leaders had come up from Jerusalem, the mother church. They go to Antioch, which is primarily a Gentile, non-Jewish church. All right. So these Jewish believers come up there and they say to these Gentile new Christians, Oh, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's so good. But if you're going to be a real Christian, right, you have to be circumcised and you have to obey all the law of Moses. You, because their, their perspective, Jesus wasn't enough. They had to add. They had to add to the work of Jesus in order for them to be really saved, to be truly Christian. 
and the conflict surface because Paul and Barnabas smell that and that's, that's not the gospel. And they enter into a dispute, a conflict, a fight, a debate with these Jewish leaders. It's not resolved and what happens? They decide that they're going to call a council. All right, They're going to gather the apostles, the elders, and other leaders in Jerusalem. They're going to gather all these people, and they're going to talk about this. They're going to pray, and they're going to talk and resolve this once and for all. All right, And last week, we looked at Peter's discourse. 100% gospel, 100% grace. That's how one is saved. Jesus plus nothing. Right? That's, remember that. Jesus plus nothing. Now, after Peter... Uh, speaks, Paul and Barnabas speak about their experience, and then James talks. And that's what I want us to look at. How James, in his speech, in his discourse, applies the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles in this conflict. It's fascinating. We'll look at it under two headings. First is that God planned to have an ethnically diverse church and ethnically diverse people. And secondly, God's grace produces a gracious church, a gracious people. Okay? So, first of all, God planned an ethnically diverse church. In verses 13 through 19, we see that. Now, James speaks. Who is James? James is the half-brother of Jesus, our Savior. Just, just let that sink in for a little bit, all right? Um, and James probably came to faith in the Lord Jesus as his Savior and Lord, you know, from 1 Corinthians 15, probably when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to him. All right? So you can see that in 1 Corinthians 15. James is recognized as one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. He's known as James the Just, uh, and probably because of his godliness and wisdom. He is the author of the epistle that we have in the New Testament, the epistle of James. And what do you know about that epistle? It's one that is highlighted by wisdom. All right? It's, it's, it's a New Testament wisdom epistle. All right? Now, so here's so keep that in mind. This is this is that James, all right. And so he has just listened to Peter and uh, Paul and Barnabas describe their experience with seeing God bring non-Jews to faith in the Lord Jesus. How God was bringing these people into the body of Christ. And James, we see in verse thirteen. Uh, He says, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, and that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. What James is saying here is saying, look, God took, he's taking Gentiles, these Gentiles that Paul and Barnabas and and Peter describing, he's, he's taking them and these Gentiles are becoming part of the people of God. You're a Jew, and you're hearing this, okay? I want you to think, what did you think about Gentiles? If you lived all your life as, an, as a Jew, what did you think about Gentiles? You thought Gentiles were separate, right? They're outside of the covenant. They're unclean. They're spiritually polluted. They are uncircumcised dogs, whatever you want. They just were not welcome, right? And now, James is saying to them, No, they are part of the people 
of God, these believing Gentiles. You see, that, that word that's translated people, all right, it was reserved for the most part in the Old Testament, at least the Greek version of the Old Testament, it was reserved for the Israel, the people of God. Everybody else was called nations. Everybody else was called Gentile. You had the people, you had the nations. And now James is saying, the nations are coming to be part of the people. You're a Jew, you go, ooh, this is not, this is weird, this is strange. How could this be? Do you, you, you feel, you feel, I want you to feel some of the tension of that. All right. Yes, these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus now belong to the true Israel, the true people of God. And notice that James does not come to this conclusion just because of Peter's experience, though he refers to his experience. You know, his experience with Cornelius. Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, you know, whom the Holy Spirit, you know, poured out upon him, right? Okay. No, Peter... You know, Peter's experience is real, but, but James comes to this understanding, but not just because of Peter's experience, but also because of the scriptures. All right? And he quotes and he cites Amos, the prophet Amos, chapter 9, verses 10, or 11 and 12. But before we get there, let me, let me just pause for a moment. How many of you sometimes will say, this has to be the will of God because I've experienced this. Sometimes we have a, a very powerful experience. Right? It could be a very emotional experience. And we say, well, this is so real, so powerful. This must be from God and I'm feeling this and therefore I'm, God must be leading me in this way. Let me give you a simple example. Let's say you're single and you want to marry, but, you know, it's hard to find someone to marry. You enter a relationship, you start to date the person, you realize that person is not a Christian. And it, it just feels, the relationship is a good relationship, all right? This is not, not it's a bad relationship, it's a, it's a relatively good relationship. You enjoy the other person, you guys get along well, everything's just wonderful. And you could, at one point, if you begin to talk about marriage, you say, what do I do? This feels right. Do I marry or do not marry? Okay. What do you do? You don't, you're not governed solely by your experience. You have to be governed as God's people by His Word. You have to be governed by His Word. You take your experience, it's real, but what you do is you take your experience and you bring it to the bar of Scripture. You look for biblical principles. You look for Scripture that is clear, that helps you understand and interpret your experience. So, in that situation, that example I'm giving you, what do you do? You look at the Scriptures, well, can I marry a non-Christian? Well, no, the Scripture says, do you marry in the Lord? And you go, oh... You see, you take your experience and you bring it to the bar of Scripture. You bring it to Scripture and you let Scripture determine what you do and not simply your experience. That's an important lesson because uh, James, though he listens to Peter's experience and Paul and Barnabas, what convinces him is not simply their experience, but the prophecy of Amos. 
The Word of God. Okay? So, it's the Scripture that judges our experiences. So, brothers and sisters, whatever experience and every decision you're trying to make, take your experience to the bar of Scripture. Now, Secondly, in the second lesson, there is from the prophet Amos. It's, it's a bit complicated. I'm not going to go through all the nuances of it, but Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 that James quotes. Essentially, this comes at the very end of the prophecy of, of Amos. And he's saying this. This prophet is saying that Jerusalem and the people of God, all right, described here as the tent of, of David, is going to be destroyed. Right? It's going to be destroyed. In other words, they're going to be exiled because of their sinfulness. The, the people of God are going to be um, destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But one day, God is going to restore and rebuild this tent of David. So think of the tent of David as the dynasty of David, all right? as a people of God. Okay, and, and one day, that dynasty is going to be restored. But, but notice what he says. When that dynasty is restored, okay, it's described in verse 17 of Acts 15, the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. See, the prophecy is that the Gentiles... Those are the nations, all right? They're going to be part of this restoration. They're going to be part of this, the people of God. They're going to be part, you know, and a descendant of David, if you will, by faith. So, now why is that important? Well, we know ultimately that the Gentiles come in, the nations like us, we come in to be part of the people of God. Why? Because of the ultimate the greater David, Jesus. Right? Jesus is that great descendant of David. And by his death and by his resurrection, by his rule from the right hand of God, he draws all men, all nations to himself. Right? And so, in Jesus, the dividing wall, that which separated the Jews from the Gentiles, is destroyed by the death of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. Now, what James is doing is confirming Peter's experience and is saying, look, Peter's experience and the scriptures confirm and substantiate this, that it's God's intention all along, it was never an afterthought in God's mind, to have different ethnicities in his church, to have different nations in his church. So you're a Jew and you're hearing this, right? These outsiders are now going to become insiders, those people that at one time I thought were outside of the people of God, now by faith in Jesus, they're becoming part of the people of God. And James is saying, that's right. That's right. And I know this is not what you're used to, but this has always been God's purpose. You know what this means? So you can imagine James saying this. I'm putting words in his mouth. He's saying, brothers, fellow brothers, Jewish brothers and sisters, Move over. Make room for these Gentiles in your church. Make room for them in your church. For the longest time, they've never been part of your church, but now they are part of it. In verse 19, what does it say? We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. 
Don't make it more difficult for them as these people who are different come into the church. Don't make it more difficult. Don't trouble them. And one scholar says, you know, about the word trouble, it's, it, it really it talks about crowding in on somebody. <laughs> Don't you like to, if somebody comes in and they're really different from you, and don't you want to just kind of press and crowd in on, I want you to be like me. I want you to be like the rest of us in this church. And James is saying, no. People who are different than you, they're going to come into the church and don't crowd in on them. Don't make them like you. That's hard, isn't it? That's hard. Because the tendency for people who've been in the church for a long time, let's describe them as the traditionalists, the long-timers in church, the people who've been lost the from the very beginning, right? You know, the ones they've been born, you were born in a church and you will die in a church. I mean, that, those, those kind of people. Right. It's hard. It's hard. Somebody who is, who's, who's been an outsider, who doesn't dress like you, who doesn't eat the same foods as you, who doesn't look like you, you know, they have different habits, they have different baggages they come with, and it's messy, and you want to fix them. You want them to be like you. I want them to be like me. Oh, life would be a lot easier if you were all like me. You know, and I can imagine the Gentiles, you know, the Jews saying, but, but James, don't you understand they smell like bacon? You know? <laughs> look, 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 it's sketchy. They're sketchy. Look at the tattoos they got on them. And you want them here. We're just fine, upright sort of people. But these people come, look at the way they dress. I don't know. He says, make room for them because Jesus has made room for them. Amen. He says, don't trouble them with your religious rituals. No. Open wide your lives. Open wide your hearts. Why? Because God, when He loved you and me, He did not say to you, you know what? First, you're going to have to change before I accept you. First, I want you to clean up your life before I accept you. First, I want you to become like me before I accept you. Oh, the grace, the wonderful grace of God in Christ Jesus, that He has loved you. He has given Himself for you. He has poured out His life for you. And you were a wicked sinner just like me. And you smell worse than bacon better. Do you see, it's not change and then you're welcome. No, you're welcome and God will do the changing. A story is told of a of an event or situation that occurred in, a, in an Episcopalian church. And if you've ever been to an Episcopalian church, it's a highly liturgical, uh, very um, staid, you know, very proper, all right, very ornate in most buildings, and they do things decently in an order, uh, unlike us, you know. And so, stories told that uh, they were having their church service, and uh, one day this hippie entered uh, the church building in the middle of the service. 
And, you know, this hippie became, did become a Christian. I mean, he was a Christian hippie, but he was dressed like a hippie. He had these clothes, you know, um, that I guess others just didn't appreciate. You know, they weren't very clean and they were kind of baggy. He had long, stringy, oily hair. And, um, and he comes into the church and he goes up the center aisle. You know, you got these very nice padded pews on both sides and the, the center aisle. And he goes up the center aisle. He goes and he sits in front of the pulpit on the floor. He takes off his shoes, he kicks back, and he's just listening. <laughs> of course, everybody in the church is just kind of, uh-oh, this is not good. An elderly man, after a few moments of silence, awkward silence, an elderly man gets up from the back. Now, this elderly man is an elder in the church, the patriarch, one of the patriarchs of the church, a statesman, highly respected, very proper, you know, very dignified, with his suit and his tie on. And he walks up the aisle. And everybody in the church is thinking, he's going to take that young man by the ear and pull him out of the church and kick him out. That's what they thought. And this elderly man comes up to the front. He sits down next to the hippie. He takes off his shoes. And he opens his Bible and he shares his Bible with him. Move over. Make room. You Jews. This is what James is saying. He's taking the gospel and he's applying it to people who are traditionalists, who want everybody to be fixed and just like us. He says, no, that's not what the gospel, that's not how the gospel works in the lives of sinners. Okay. Brothers and sisters, is there somebody that you need to make room for in your life? Somebody that you say, you know, I just, I'd love for them to change. I wish they would dress this way. I wish they would be like this. Is God saying to you, stop troubling them. I will change them. You accept them. You move over. You welcome them. You open your heart to them. You see, this is a particularly unique challenge and an appropriate challenge for us at Las Tierras where we want to be body of different ethnicities. And this means we have to move over quite a bit. Well, secondly, James says God's grace produces a gracious church. God's grace produces a gracious church. So he's addressed the, the Jewish believers but now, in verse 20, what we find him doing is addressing the Gentiles. He's going to address the Gentiles. All right, because in any conflict, there are two parts. <laughs> and you want to say, well, these people are right, these people are wrong. The truth of the matter is, those who are right, who think they're right, and those who are, think they're wrong, or whatever, whatever, they both need the gospel in different ways. Right? And so now he's, he's going to address the Gentile believers. All right? And I can't imagine there are a whole lot of Gentile believers in the Jerusalem church, but they're going to they're gonna find the contents of what James says in a letter. And, and we know later on uh, they receive this letter. And, the, and, and it's a kind of an odd sort of thing. And it's puzzled um, biblical commentators and scholars for a long time. That what James tells these Gentiles and this list, he gives them a list of four things that the Gentiles have to abstain from. Right? In this conflict, he says... Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. 
this, and this, this information, if we know later on the council hears it, says, yeah, this is a great idea, this is good. They put in a letter, it gets, circulates to the church in Antioch, in Cilicia, and Syria, the Gentile churches. And, and verse 31, when these people, when these Gentiles heard this letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So they were encouraged by it. This is good news. That meant that they didn't have to be circumcised, and that's good news. They didn't have to keep all those other mosaic laws. That's good news. But why does James tell them to abstain from these four things? What What do they mean? What's his purpose? Look, this has plagued commentators and, as I said, and scholars for a long time, and I'm not going to come here and give you the definitive answer. But let me, let me see if I can give you some uh, perspective on this, all right? There's two ways of interpreting what James says. One is, if you, if, if you think of, some say, well, James is thinking of this background, the pagan temple feasts, all right? So, all right, let's, let's imagine that's the case. If what he's thinking about are Gentiles who were, would go to the, their pagan temples and have these feasts and celebrations... All right, and what happened in those feasts? Uh, well, sacrificial meat was eaten. That came from animals that were strangled. Right. What happened to those feasts? They would drink blood. You know, um, they would not only eat the meat offered to idols, but they would drink the blood. What happened to those feasts? There was temple prostitution. See, see now, now you begin to think if. if if that's the background, you go, oh, okay. So if that's the case, what James is saying to them, he says, look, you Gentile believers, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God, in order to be truly saved. You don't need to observe all the Mosaic laws in order to be saved. However, you cannot cling to your pagan idolatrous past. All right? You cannot keep on living the way you have been living and all those customs of the past. Because you, don't you know this is offensive to God and offensive to the Jews? Okay, that's, that's one way of interpreting that. Okay? Let me give you another possibility. And that is that the background for these four abstentions is Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 18. Let me just very briefly tell you. I need, I need you to stay with me for a moment here, okay? Leviticus 17. Uh, there, basically, you could say there are certain things, there are restrictions, laws about not eating blood. Okay? That's it. I'm going to give it to you that way. You, you know, and animals that, you know, you couldn't eat certain animals if the blood wasn't drained from it. All right? So, that's, that's what part of Leviticus 17 is about. Leviticus 18, it's about who you could marry, sexual relations, and who you could marry. And, see, a Jew could not marry his cousin or her cousin, right? It's, it's about these blood relationships. And so, now, now if that's the background, all right, that, that's also a possibility. But you're a Jewish believer. You've been observing Levitical food restrictions, blood restrictions all your life. You've avoided contact with Gentiles. And you knew that Gentiles would eat meat that was strangled or eat meat that was sacrificed um, to idols, right? And you, or perhaps they would buy meat in the marketplace because some of this meat wasn't always eaten in the feast. It was sold in the marketplace for real cheap, good sirloin, real cheap, you know? And they would go for it. 
uh, and you knew that if you were to eat or touch that meat, that was a tantamount to showing allegiance to the idol. All right? And, uh, and you also knew that as a Jew, you couldn't abide by the way, the way Gentiles married. You couldn't marry your cousin. All right? Your first cousin. But here's the problem. Now these Gentiles are turning to God. They're worshiping in the same churches <laughs> as a Jew, right? They would have the Lord's table together. They would come together around the table of the Lord. They would have table fellowship. They would associate with one another. Can you feel the tension? All your life you say, get away, you're unclean, you're idolatrous, and now they're coming in and they're sitting at the same table with you? James has told the Jews, move over, make room at the table. And now he's turning to the Gentiles and he has a word for them. You see, because these Jews, they're not going to overcome their prejudices and their practices overnight, are they? This is going to be difficult. So James is wise and he knows if this conflict is to be resolved properly, if the unity and the fellowship in the church and this ethnically mixed church is to be preserved, then the Gentiles also need to hear the gospel. And how does he do it? He says, you Gentiles, you may have the right to eat food from the marketplace that's been offered up to idols. But out of charity and love for these Jews who find it offensive, out of respect for their weak consciences, if you will, out of love for them, restrain. Restrain yourselves. Restrict yourselves. All right. So, if that's the case, if this is what James is saying, then I can summarize it like this. When you're with your Jews, when you're with Jews, you Gentiles, eat kosher out of love for them. Don't, don't go in there with that steak that you just bought in the marketplace. You, go, you know, you bring it to the potluck and just flop it on the table. And just... Don't do that. You know, this is the case, what Paul says in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. You know, he talks about the scene there, the scenario, right? That imagine... You know, you have no qualms. You have no scruples. You can eat meat, you know, that was offered to uh, an idol because it's a good price. And because what's an idol? Paul says it's nothing, right? It's nothing. It's just meat. But, but you're going to eat in presence of somebody else that sees that's idolatrous, it's unclean. Paul says, you refrain. Do not what? He says, verse, uh, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 8, take care that this right... This is your right. You could do this. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become assembly block to the weak. Do you see what he's doing? The gospel says to you and to me, you may have rights, but 
sometimes out of love for your brothers and sisters, you restrict yourself. You don't say, well, I got a right to do this as a Christian. It's my Christian liberty that allows me to have some wine, to have a beer, to have a steak, to have some morcilla, blood sausage. Right? I'm a Christian. I'm free. I can do this. And I sat in Spain with his pastor and I was eating blood sausage and he looked at me and he cited Leviticus. I should have understood at that moment that I should have taken out that blood sausage, put it on the table, says, let's order somebody, something else. I don't think I did that. I said, ah, go for it, go for it. No, I should have respected him. He was struggling out of love. See, the gospel says you take your rights and you go, yeah, you enjoy them. This is liberty. But sometimes for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of your brother for whom Jesus died, you you don't want to be a stumbling block. You don't want to be troublesome for him or her. You don't want them to your, your liberty to destroy their faith. So you restrain yourself. You abstain. You see, If we understand grace that has saved us, if we understand how much Jesus has loved us and how he's given himself for us, we understand as well that grace makes us a gracious people. If you say you know the grace of God in Christ Jesus, but you're not gracious, dig back in deeply into the grace of the gospel. Grace ought to make us charitable with one another. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to deny your right, your Christian liberty, for the sake of your brother and sister in Christ? Remember last week I said, use the example about us Hispanos that we're not very punctual. <laughs> and, I, and I made the point that if, if you who are more time-oriented want to say, look, if you're a real Christian, you'll be on time. All right? A real Christian is punctual. All right? All right? Remember that? Well, we know it's not the case. We know that a real Christian could be late, right? <laughs> And really late at times. You see, punctuality is not one of those things that makes you a Christian. It's not, it's believe in Jesus and be punctual and you'll be a Christian. Alright, it's not that. So, so I was urging, all right, urging you who are time-oriented to be patient with those who are not time-oriented, who are event-oriented, and the event takes a long time somewhere else. Okay? But now I'm going to turn it around. Because this is what James is doing. He's turning it around. You who are event-oriented and don't think it's a big deal to be punctual, would you be punctual for the sake of your brothers who are time-oriented? Would you do it out of charity? Not because it comes, you know, part of your culture, but would you do it out of love for your brother or sister who's waiting on you? Out of respect for them. Do you see how the gospel goes both ways? Let me address something that's a little bit more sensitive while I'm at it. 
We have never from this pulpit talked about how to dress here in Las Tierras. Some of you wish I were. I would say something about how to dress. I'm going to give you the Las Tierras uniform code. Okay? If you follow this uniform code, you will you know, be surely get into heaven. <laughs> I'm being facetious. I hope you understand that. We will never give you a code of how to dress. But I trust that you will dress in a way that's not illegal <laughs> and not immoral. <laughs> All right? Wear clothes. I don't care what kind of clothes. Just wear clothes. Wear clothes. Yeah, you go. Wear clothes. But now, let me say this. If you are, you know, one of those fashionistas, you know, you just love to be, you know, wearing the latest, you know, whatever is modern and in vogue. Whatever, however you want to dress, could you, as you get dressed in the morning, think about the other people that you're going to be with and say, you know what, I'm, I am free to dress, the, to wear this dress, to wear this top, whatever. I'm free to do so. But because of my brothers and sisters there, they might be distracted. I might actually be a stumbling block for them if I go into church like this or if I go into work like this before I got in public like this. And so you do it not because, you know, somehow the law is restricting you and is just choking you. No, you do it because... Jesus gave up his rights, his freedom and glory, and he became a servant to you and to me. Look out, not just for your interests, Paul says in Philippians, but for the interests of others. Do you see how the gospel goes both ways? How do we apply the gospel in life? Only if the Lord, and this is I get back to the Grinch now, gives us a big heart. (laughs) If we have large, grace, Holy Spirit-filled hearts, we'll be able to give up our rights, to love our brother or sister who's different from us, not demand that they change, but we will move over, make room at the table, make room in this church. Because Jesus made room for us. I want to invite you to pray this week for God to enlarge your heart. I don't know what that's going to look like in your life. But to make you more generous toward others. To make you more attractive. There is nothing as uh, ugly as an ungracious, uncharitable Christian. I want you to display the beauty of the grace of God that produces the graciousness and a charity in our hearts. I think if we as a people do that, we'll be winsome, attractive, not because of us, but because of Jesus in us. This Jesus who loves you and me so deeply, who's doing a good work in us, who is conforming us to that glorious image. Pray that we would be conformed, that we would be large-hearted, 
Lord, make Las Tierras a large-hearted church. We don't want to be a puny-hearted church. Lord, do this for your honor and for your glory. Do this for the magnificent grace that you've poured out upon us. Do this so that your name is exalted. Do this, Lord God, because one day your people will be gathered around your throne and they will be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they will be praising our great God. And we will all sing in multiple languages that salvation belongs to our God, our gracious God, our large-hearted God. We bless you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.